morning. morning. Happy Sunday. So um, for those of you who have a program uh, in front of you, you can follow along with me for those of you um, who do not have a program. I will read this for you. Uh, what I'm going to read for you is uh, case number 87 from the Blue Cliff Record. That's a koan um, collection. And the koan uh, goes thusly. Yunmen said to the assembly, medicine and sickness cure each other. The whole earth is medicine. What is the self? I'll read it again. Yunmen said to the assembly, medicine and sickness cure each other. The whole earth is medicine. What is the self? Pretty cool. That's the Blue Cliff Record. Um, so I'm not going to talk about that con. I just like it. <laughs> I thought it would be a nice way to start. I'm going <laughs> to indirectly refer to some of the ideas referred to by that con. But please do not think of this as some high-level exegesis. This is, that's not my way. Um, what I do want to start with today, though, is... Um, the reference to sickness and medicine, of course, is central to the tradition that we now call Buddhism, right? Um, the relationship between suffering and what transforms suffering, what heals suffering, what changes suffering, how we relate to suffering, what ends suffering. We know that's kind of Buddhism's central project, right? We know that at the heart of the tradition we call Buddhism, we find the universal truth of suffering. And at the heart of our Zen tradition, because we are part of what's called Mahayana, uh, we find the ideals of compassion and wisdom rising up to meet that universal suffering. And everything in our tradition um, is going to come back and have some connection to that, that fundamental relationship between compassion and wisdom and the thing that we call suffering, right? The liturgy that we do here, the zazen that we do here, um, <coughs> retreats, meetings with teachers, black cushions, um, pledge drives, people folding programs <coughs> out on the porch uh, with koans that the speaker doesn't refer to, <laughs> all those things have some relationship, right? They're designed to be connected to the fact that the experience of suffering is universal. And our tradition holds that the best way of relating to that suffering is with compassion and wisdom. So we have some archetypes. I talk about these two archetypes a lot. Um, there are many, many other archetypes, but I talk about these two mostly because I'm still working with them. Right? Avalokiteshvara and Manjushri, 
most of us know those words if you're new um, you don't know those words those are big vocab words they are awesome at Scrabble if you can pull one of those out Avalokiteshvara yeah you just won the game if you can find that in Scrabble Avalokiteshvara is our is our uh, emblematic figure our our bodhisattva our totem uh, of compassion right she is compassion the essence of compassion. So what I want to suggest to you is that she appreciates suffering. She's the goddess of compassion, the bodhisattva of compassion, the archetype of compassion. And so what I want to suggest, and this is just a suggestion, this is not truth being handed down from above. I'm just suggesting the idea that one of the qualities of her relationship with suffering must be appreciation. I'm suggesting she is in loving relationship with suffering. I'm suggesting that compassion meets the suffering of the world with the elixir of acceptance and profound kindness. And acceptance and kindness are included in appreciation, right? Do you see how these, these are just words, we're playing with words, right? We're just playing with words. But there's a power in the symbol of a word, right? The, the, the word acceptance is a symbol for something, right? The word avalokiteshvara is just a symbol for something. And so even though these are just symbols we're playing with, uh, language does have the possibility of showing us some nuance in our experience because they're not as discreet as we like to imagine them being. What's the difference between loving relationship and appreciation? What's the difference between loving relationship and appreciation and kindness and acceptance and compassion? Are they all just different words for the very same thing or are they all kind of facets on the same jewel? I'm, I don't know the answer to that. But I found that playing with language around these qualities really helps open my experience. And the reason that matters is because <laughs> my job, like yours, is to be Avalokiteshvara. Right? I did not come to this place to worship Avalokiteshvara. I came to this place to remember that I am that and therefore getting in touch in my feeling body, in my physical body, in my thinking body, in my memory body, in my karma body with experiences of kindness and exception, uh, um, acceptance and inclusion and compassion and really playing with that. What does that feel like? What does that actually do to the experience of suffering when it arises in my heart? What does that actually do? I want to watch it happen. Does that kind of make sense? I mean, all of us have had the experience of going, oh, I'm so angry or oh, I'm so disappointed. Oh, I'm so scared. Oh, I'm so lost. Oh, I'm so lonely. Oh, I'm so confused. You know, I don't have to give you your list. You know the list, <laughs> right? And when that experience that we call suffering is met inside of you with the other quality that you possess, that whole list we just, kindness, acceptance, curiosity, compassion, wisdom. To actually watch in your experience, to watch that thing happen. What it doesn't feel like to me, that's why I'm offering it to you just as a suggestion. What it doesn't feel like to me is one thing eradicated the other. Or one thing had an enemy and the enemy defeated it. It doesn't feel like my suffering had an enemy that came in and killed it. It doesn't feel like that to me. 
It feels instead like my sadness was held and appreciated and understood. Do you feel it? And something else began to happen. And the impermanent state called sadness or loneliness, like a cloud in the sky, began to change all by itself. It wasn't an act of oppositional violence. It wasn't an idea of one thing having more power than the other. It feels instead like the opposite of that. Like because the sadness was appreciated so fully and welcomed in so deeply and loved so completely that it changed all by itself. That's how it feels to me experientially. So that's just why I'm suggesting that as an idea. You can try it on and see how it works. So, Avalokiteshvara meets the suffering of the world with the elixir of acceptance and profound kindness. Of course, she's oftentimes um, he, she, they, whatever. This is a bodhisattva, right? They just switch around depending on what mood they're in, I guess. Um, but she's oftentimes depicted with a, a little vessel, a little, I don't know, a little vessel, a little jug that she can drop the, the drops of kindness into the ocean of tears, right? That's her job is to, to drop the kindness in. So she has this little vessel with her and she drops it in. And I was just like, cool. <laughs> I'm into that kind of stuff, right? I was raised Catholic, right? So like all the little images and the little symbols and all the iconography and all the little doodads, man, that's my juice. I just dig that, right? And so, oh, she gets the little vessel thing. And then, you know, Manjushri gets the sword and he gets the scroll. But there's nothing written on the scroll. Oh, God, that's so cool. It's Kung Fu Panda. You know, the whole thing. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just into that. I love the little doodads. Man, I just love it. So I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> um, I'm getting ahead of myself. So Manjushri, is she, uh, he is her complement. Or again, these, the gender things are just essentially arbitrary. But Manjushri is, is set up as the complementary energy to Avalokiteshvara's compassion, the willingness to appreciate suffering. Manjushri is uh, the complementary energy of wisdom, the ability to discern what is true. The ability to discern what is true. And yeah, he gets a sword, which is very, very cool. And it's, and it's a flaming sword, which is even cooler. I mean, come on. It's like, George Lucas, you didn't invent anything, man. You just stole from good people, right? It's a flaming sword. It's extremely cool. And because Manjushri is the bodhisattva of wisdom, I will suggest to us today the possibility that he appreciates delusion. I don't think of delusion as being his enemy. That doesn't work for me. It's okay if you do. I'm not here to correct anything. I'm just here to suggest a tweak in the words. Might tweak the relationship you have within yourself when you notice your delusion instead of thinking, ooh, I've got something here to... Can you feel it? My delusion is my enemy. Instead of going, oh, you're here. There must be a reason that you're here. Causes and conditions. Right? Basic Buddhism. There's something's there. There's a reason it's there. Causes and conditions. So to understand, even, even to accept, oh, I, oh, you're here. You cause suffering. I understand that you cause suffering. Delusion causes, under, causes suffering. I get it. But you're here because of causes and conditions. There's a reason that you're here. Not only do I accept that you're here, but I'm now curious about why you're here. I want to understand the entire mechanism of how you came to be. And that, to me, feels awfully like appreciation. I'm not talking about 
appreciation meaning to feed, right, or sustain, or condone, or continue. That's not the kind of appreciation I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of appreciation we have when we are having a conversation with somebody who disagrees with us, right? Disagrees with us about whatever the thing is, right? And you go, ah, I appreciate your point of view, but. And I get why you like that. I understand why you've landed on that, why you really do think green tea is better than black tea. That's clearly ridiculous. I mean, no sane person. But I appreciate that you were raised in a country that, and you associate that with your grandmother. Oh, I appreciate that, right? Has that changed your mind? No. <laughs> I tried to pick the like least volatile example. <laughs> Did you notice that? I almost said like Vikings Packers. I almost said like, you know, Twins Brewers. And I was like, no, no, no. Keep it chill. <laughs> Appreciation, that's an interesting word. So my suggestion is that Manjushri appreciates delusion and that he is in loving relationship with it. He meets the delusion of the world with the sword, that's his symbol, um, or the blank scroll, of clear understanding and profound truth. They both appreciate the illness that they cure. The walls and barriers of our pain and ignorance are not healed by judgment and condemnation. They are heal healed by our kind attention and they are healed by loving relationship. Bodhisattvas and suffering have met and cured each other. Medicine and sickness have met and cured each other. So, whoops, I'm talking about the koan. I promise not to. But isn't that a fascinating koan that it starts with the sentence, medicine and sickness cure each other. That's fascinating. It's a play of words, and I appreciate it was not written in English. I appreciate it has been translated. I do not know the nuances of the original Chinese. But what I would typically assume is that Medicine stops, ends, kills, ceases sickness. That's the point, right? The medicine is to make the illness go away, to cease it, to end it. And so to use words to say, oh, they cure each other, is like going, what, what do you, wait, 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 what are, you, what are you talking about? Medicine still works. What are you talking about? Why are you describing that as a relationship that's mutually beneficial? Cure each other? suggest that one is dependent on the other or something. What are you talking about, that they cure each other? That's a fascinating turn of phrase, isn't it? So to think of Avalokiteshvara and suffering curing one another, right? to think of Manjushri and ignorance curing one another, there's a very different relationship that's suggested there. So that's all we're really playing, that's all I'm really playing with today. And the only reason I'm playing with this isn't because it's a cool conceptual trippy thing. I'm playing with it because when I read this koan, and this is, I really can't speak with authority to this koan. There are levels to this thing that I cannot get to. But the reason I've always appreciated it is it gives me a feeling tone that has always been puzzling to me because the example is used, medicine and sickness. And like all of us, I have been enculturated to hate sickness and to love medicine, right? One of those is a good guy and one of them is a bad guy, right? Because nobody wants to get sick. Illness, bad. Sickness, bad. Old age, bad. Death, bad. Bad, 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 bad. Medicine, good. Long life, good. Youth, good. Health, good. 
ooh, isn't that nice? The universe is split in half, but it's pretty clear, and one half of it is good, and the other half is bad, and so we know who's going to, you know, da-da-da-da-da, right? So even the language of the first sentence immediately gives me a sense of, well, what exactly is going on in your heart when you set those two things up against each other? Especially in light of impermanence, and especially in light of the inevitability of sickness and old age and death. Isn't that interesting? I'm not answering any of these questions because I don't know the answers, but that's fascinating. That's fascinating because every single person in this room and in this virtual room, we're all going to get sick, we're all going to get old, and we're all going to die without any exception. Absolutely everybody without exception. So does that mean like sickness wins? <laughs> does that mean that the medicine of kindness or the medicine of compassion doesn't have a place? The medicine loses forever no matter what? Avalokiteshvara and Manjushri have no function. Buddha has no function. Your zazen has no function. The Zen center has no function. There's no point. Medicine and sickness cure each other. There's an entirely different relationship being offered to us there. So I'm just inviting us to play with it a little bit in our hearts. So let's talk about it this way. I'll pivot just a little bit. Um, Dogen, Dogen Zenji, our, our uh, Soto, Soto Zen guy, says it this way. At least I think this is the same thing. On this body, put the Buddha seal. It's part of a, he was riffing on Zazen when you're sitting. You know. On this body, put the Buddha seal. <laughs> Isn't that cool? <laughs> I'm not sure what he meant. But when I read it, because I just got through reading Blue Cliff Record 87, I went, you know what? Maybe there's... Maybe you're talking about the relationship with the body. The body that's going to get old, and it's going to get sick, and it's going to die. The body that needs medicine. The body that's prone to illness. Maybe you're talking about the Buddha seal and the body curing each other. Maybe that's what you're talking about. I don't know. The Buddha seal is this openness. No division between yourself and the object. No division between yourself and your life. Um, that's kind of the Soto Zen party line, isn't it? When you sit down. Uh, and you do the thing that we call zazen or meditation, that you are putting the Buddha seal on that body. It is your true nature, the Buddha seal, the Buddha nature is your nature. That is what you are. And so now you are putting that on your life. You're putting that on your life. You're putting that on your bones and your muscles. You're putting that on your experience. You're putting that on your emotions. You're putting that on your thoughts. You're enacting that. You're putting the Buddha seal. So there we have the pain, the suffering, the ignorance, the difficulty of human life being met, held completely without gap by who you really are, your compassion nature, your, your wisdom nature, your love nature, your enlightened nature. Right? That's the Buddha seal. You've just put it right there on your body where all the stuff comes from, all the stuff, right? And so we're encouraged when we sit zazen and when we don't, actually, 
Do not create a gap between your life and the Buddha's life. Do not create a gap between your life and the Buddha's life. I can hear Dogen's, you know, practice and enlightenment or one thing in that. Like, oh, can't be later, can't be the other person, can't be the thing on the altar. It's got to be you, kiddo. Um, kiddo is Japanese <laughs> for uh, venerable. <laughs> Uh, whenever I'm doing my kind voice and I'm not paying attention, I immediately default to grandma. That's grandma. Right? Uh, do that. If you have a figure in your life, seriously, if you have a figure in your life, grandma, next door neighbor, nice lady at church, dad, whatever, who had the nickname for you or, or used that little thing, that tone of voice, that little uh, uh, way of speaking, that something that they did, when they talk to you with great kindness and you could tell them in the presence of somebody who really loves me, remember that word, use it. Use it on yourself. Don't forget it. That's a thing. Seriously, because at some point when you're in a really, really rough spot and you're like, oh my God, I'm really in a rough spot, you can use that. That's yours. They gave that to you. That was a gift. So call yourself sweetie or kiddo or champ or buddy or pal. Use it. They gave that to you. Right? It belongs to you now. It's your name. But use it to remind you, oh, yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. It helps you touch the wise mind. It helps you touch Avalokiteshvara, right? That's what she's going to call you. Oh, sweetheart, you're really having a rough day, aren't you? Oh, God, I can see it. Come here. Here, have half the lemon cookie. Tell me about it. Right? Lemon cookie, that was Grandma. All right. <coughs> When you close this gap between your life and the Buddha's life, between the part of you that's hurting and the part of you that goes, oh, kiddo, that's the Buddha. That's the Buddha seal, right? When you close this gap, Dogen says, you become, quote, the Buddha seal itself. The whole space becomes subtly itself. Now, that is the koan, and I will not spend time on that today. But when Dogen says, you become the Buddha seal itself and the whole space becomes subtly itself, that's the collapse of opposites between medicine and sickness, where those two things cure each other and they are now no longer separate. Again, that's another talk for another day. But that's what Dogen is talking about there. If we open this much to our own experience, which is what all of us try to do every time we sit, Is there anything else that we need? I'm just asking that question. And I'm not implying the answer is no. I'm actually asking you that question. When you are sitting, or again, when you are not, but when you are sitting, oh, and there it is. And you go, oh, there it is. Do you need anything to be different? I'm not answering that question, but that's a big one. So I encourage you to sit with that. Because in the minute that suffering is met with compassion, is there a need? I will remind you the suffering is still there. It still hurts. It's just being met with compassion. Hmm. The whole space becomes subtly itself. 
medicine and sickness have met and cured each other. Okay, another voice, Pema Chodron, a little more contemporary. Um, although I don't know if Dogen is like old so much as just from another planet or something. I really can't. Sometimes I'm like, you're like maybe five, almost like sci-fi, right? Like you have any like sci-fi fans here? You're like, either you wrote this a long, long, long time ago or a long, long, long time from now because this is really wild stuff, you know. So Pema, what does Pema say? Rather than going after our inner walls and barriers with a sledgehammer, we pay attention to them with gentleness and honesty. We move closer to those walls. We touch them and smell them and get to know them well. Is that sounding like appreciation? Just a little... <clears throat> we touch those walls, we smell them, we get to know them well. We become familiar with the strategies and the beliefs that we use to build these walls. What are the stories we tell ourselves? What repels me and what attracts me? Without calling what we see right or wrong, we simply look as objectively as we can. We can observe ourselves with humor, not getting overly serious, moralistic, or uptight about the investigation. Year after year, we train in remaining open and receptive to whatever arises. Slowly, very slowly, the cracks in the walls seem to widen, and as if by magic, bodhicitta is able to flow freely. She says it so well. Did that make sense? Did that fit in with the flow of? Okay, thank you for nodding. I know it would be rude of you to shake your head, so that's not even a fair question. If you're like, no, dude, you totally went off the rails. That's not a failure. But I still appreciate it. Um, what I like about just, the, again, the feeling tone of what she's saying, because she's talking about how we relate to our suffering. She's talking about how we relate to our suffering. She's talking about how we relate to our suffering. I really, I love her word choice. Just being like, touch it and feel it and smell it and get to know it. Understand how it arises. Listen to its storyline. That feels to me like not only acceptance, but really getting in there and going, oh, I get how this works. And the reason I'm hanging on to the word appreciate today so strongly is what I trust about the reality of causes and conditions, right? The truth of causes and conditions, the Buddhist idea that everything exists because of causes and conditions, then what that has to imply is everything's there for a reason. Even the structures of suffering in me were at some point created because they were the best I had. That was the best option available to me. The thing I created sucks. It's horrible. It doesn't really, but you know, at the time of the available options. The reason I like the teaching, you guys, is because it takes away, or at least to some degree for me, helps ventilate my propensity for self-cruelty. There's your ignorance, and then I add it with, wham. There's your greed. Wham. Wow, you've got a system of like misogyny that exists in your head because of how your culture formed you. Wham. Like, I can see it. I know that it's there. But I also understood how it came to be. What it does to me is it takes away the and it's your fault part. Now what it doesn't do is take away the and it's your responsibility part. Oh, shoot. <laughs> 
That's very clear in Buddhism. Oh, yeah, kiddo. <laughs> that problem is yours. But it's not yours until you see it, because you can't own or do anything about it until you see it. And if you see it as something that arose because of causes and conditions, then maybe that takes away some of this wham stage. I'm only offering that to you because I know all of us do it. I'm claiming that it's me, because it is me. But all of us do this. When we start meditating and we start seeing what's there, you start going, oh my God, yeah, wow. This teaching really is accurate. The suffering creation machine is down there and it is kick ass. It really, really works. It works all the time and it's doing it and it's generating it and it's so good at what it does. But to be able to regard that as, and I come by that honestly, I understand why it is there. It just takes away that second step. Does that make sense? At least a little, I hope. Okay, that's why I'm talking about appreciate so much. Okay. Can we see the meeting there of medicine and sickness? And when Pema says um, bodhicitta, that's way-seeking mind, the part of us that wants to, um, the part of us that want, that aspires, the part of us that aspires to wake up. Year after year, we train in remaining open and receptive to whatever arises, and very slowly the cracks seem to widen, and finally we're beginning to flow more freely. Can we see the meeting there of medicine and sickness? To me, that's where I can really see the meeting. And to me, that feels like very deep touching. We have to be very, very open to be that intimate with our walls, the way Pema is describing. She's a deeply courageous being who has been sitting for a very long time. And at this point, her heart has to include everything. She's just got to say, even if there's a small piece, I want to rush toward it. Um, that's you too. At the beginning, it's mostly the big pieces, but as time goes on, we're more and more and more drawn to the subtle little constrictions of the heart that we notice as meditators, right? Those little constrictions that happen. We just get drawn to them because we go, oh, my suffering is there. And we just move toward it, right? This is what she's been doing for a long, long, long time. So that's very deep touching and very deep living. Thich Nhat Hanh said, when you live deeply, you touch eternity. So um, I'm not sure what live deeply implies. I'm guessing there's a whole slew of talks, classes, practice periods that could be given on the topic of living deeply because those are pretty big words. Um, but I would suggest that for many of us, that's more of a quality of relationship with body and emotion than it is concepts, probably. Probably, enlightenment isn't seeing everything. Probably, enlightenment is just realizing that what you see is everything. Probably, enlightenment isn't just a bigger idea, right? Or grand unification theory that you can fit in your three pounds of gray, right? Probably it's found elsewhere in the kiddo moment, probably. That's why in our tradition we hold phrases like attaining enlightenment with a lot of skepticism or at least a lot of caution. 
terms of grasping in that, that we are kind of wary of. There's also woven into that the idea that we don't already have it, and that doesn't quite work either. We can sort of see how ego consciousness in the brain can kind of lead us astray if we're not careful. So um, I'm getting close here, and I want to um, read a really short passage from a book called Tales of the Magic Monastery. Tim, um, Tim used to um, read sections of this book. It's by Theophane the monk. He's a, um, a Christian monastic, and I, don't, I, I think he's actually chosen because of uh, his desert tradition to remain anonymous. I think they only just use the first name, and the first name is given to them kind of like in our Buddhist tradition, right? The name is given to you, so you'd have a really hard time tracking this person down. Um, but he wrote, a, he wrote a neat little book that are kind of like contemporary koans. They kind of have that feel, to me anyway, called Tales of the Magic Monastery. And so this one goes this way. Um, some of you have heard this before. I asked each of the monks that I met this question. What great blunder have you made? That's a great question, by the way. Later, when we're talking outside and we're having tea, <laughs> when we're having tea later, you guys, and you're meeting your friend, oh, hi, I, oh, hi, I'm Carrie. Welcome to Zen Center. I've been hanging out here a long time. What great blunder <laughs> have you made? I'm just trying to get to know you. <laughs> that is an icebreaker, though. Wow, you know? If you really trusted that would be met with no judgment, you'd say, oh, the list is so long. I thought you could eat paste, and so I started eating paste when I was in first grade. Okay. <laughs> I sidetracked myself again. What great blunder have you made? I'm just like, wow, welcome to the monastery, dude. No wonder no one hung out with you during dinner. <laughs> one of them answered, there was a stone in my room, and I did not love it. Wow, that is a good icebreaker, actually. Now we're having a really good question, or a really good conversation. There was a stone in my room, and I did not love it. What do you mean? I don't understand. You didn't love a stone? I just didn't love it. I was close to redeeming the whole world, but I looked down on that stone. I'm just like, oh, man. I can just feel that. I was this close to redeeming the whole world. Right? But I look down on that stone. I'm like, oh man. Suffering is Buddhism's central project. And suffering is not an idea. Suffering is Buddhism's central project, and our ideas about suffering alone will not heal. Suffering is Buddhism's central project, and our suffering is stored in ourselves. It is stored in our planet. It is stored in our aching hearts. And it is also stored in our minds. Our suffering is stored everywhere. Does that feel right to you? I wrote that because it felt right. I'm like, this feels like a true thing. So the healing must be everywhere, too. That makes sense. The healing must be vast and include our ideas, but it also must include our hearts, our bodies, our memories, our families, our blood enemies. We must love every stone 
or all is lost. We must love every stone because every stone is everything. Enlightenment isn't seeing everything, it's realizing that what you see is everything. We must love every stone or all is lost. So that's how big the love is. It's way more than an idea of love or an idea of enlightenment. No, it's physical. The atoms of all lands everywhere are each and every one a Buddha to be able to know their number. This is what work should be done. <sighs> the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra. Memorize the Avatamsaka Sutra. <laughs> Five people in this room laughed because the Avatamsaka Sutra is 1,500 pages of very small type on very thin paper. <laughs> oh, baby. And it's filled with language like that. The atoms of all lands everywhere are each and every one a Buddha to be able to know their number. This is what work should be done. That's the Buddha seal. I'm like, this all makes sense to me. That's how complete the healing is. It's cellular. It's on the atomic level. This is where, the, this is not ideas of, can you feel it? I mean, what I love about that passage, whether we take that literally or metaphorically, is your body is made of molecules, and those molecules are made of atoms. We all know that because we're all scientific and we're all clever, right? And this thing that's a thousand years old or however old it is, saying, okay, so each of those atoms is a Buddha. This is not your idea of enlightenment. This is not your idea. That was there before you, the you that decided this is your name and this is your favorite color and this is the kind of tea you like and this is the sports team that you have allegiance to. Way before all the conditioning happened, way before all the karma happened, way, way, way before all of that, just the atoms, just the essence of you, just consciousness itself that knew somehow how to organize and create and complexify and grow and learn and expand. Do you feel it? Life itself, life itself. That's where the healing has to, has to, has to. It cannot be an idea anymore. It can include this. It can include this. But when our suffering is physical, then Avalokiteshvara's elixir has to go down into the body. And when our ignorance and our hate and our greed is physical, then Manjushri's sword has to go down into the body. Isn't that beautiful to think that the healing can go that far down? And isn't it beautiful to think that's who you really are? That that's who you really are. It's the thing that comes later. Oh, I learned it. Oh, right. That's nice. If I learned it, then I can just unlearn it. That's not so hard. That isn't so hard, especially as you get older and you start forgetting stuff anyway. <laughs> right? You just learned a bunch of wrong stuff. Oh, well, let's forget it. Poof. So I'm going to end with this. Bodies wake up and become whole. Hearts wake up and become whole. Minds wake up and be whole, become whole. Sickness and medicine, medicine and sickness. This is a huge project that goes way past our human ideas about it. Only the cosmic Buddha can do this. That is why it is said, each atom a Buddha. That is our practice. 
to know each atom, to include them all, to see them all, to understand them all, to heal them all, to love them all. This is not an idea. Enlightenment is not an idea. The sickness and the medicine are both cellular. This is what work should be done. So, that's as much as I have to say today about sickness and medicine, and I thank you for your attention. Um, I was pretty well behaved, 40 minutes, I guess. Um, which means we have a few minutes. Um, I know that uh, the Doan has some announcements and stuff that need to be made, but if folks have stuff they'd like to offer, uh, comments, questions, similar, f similar veins of inquiry, um, thank you. Hi. Hi. <laughs> medicine sickness because mm. um, I started um, uh, I guess intentionally doing that the Tom Lang the breathing and suffering and the Hawaiian people, uh, victims right oh yeah yeah and it um, and it like uh, yeah it really touched me and it opened up some grief for me for my uh, my parents and that had been sitting there for decades you know yeah. so it definitely was the the suffering you know medicine yeah that's beautiful, thank you. Uh, do you guys know the word Tonglen, some of you? Know the word Tonglen, but that, that's not a Zen thing, so we wouldn't necessarily know it, but the idea of um, with intention opening oneself with the power of the imagination to the suffering of another, um, and then breathing, breathing that in and then breathing out, um, again, using the imagination, kind of breathing out the, the medicine, essentially, that they need, right, whatever that is. I'm describing it very crudely here, but... Um, Thank you for noticing that led you to the personal. Isn't that fascinating? Because it works both ways, right? Like your grief around your folks on some level can't be different than my grief around my folks. And on some level can't be different than the grief of those folks. And also to hold the fact that those are distinct at the same time. It, we, get, we get better at doing that kind of stuff holding what we imagine are opposites. My grief and your grief, they're the same, but they're different. We get better at doing that with meditation, and you just described that brilliantly on an emotional level. Did that make sense? Okay, I, w I thought maybe I lost it there. Thank you for that, yeah. Yeah. Carrie. Not too short, thank you for this. Yeah, thanks for letting me make fun of you there for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I appreciate that you offered this, you know, the, the words that we might have from uh, people who loved us, you know, kiddo or sweetie or darling. Mm. And as a person who didn't have that, I have used you, who mm. has always said sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Grandma. Said, you know, and other teachers that either I know personally or have read, you know, that are my book teachers and imagine them saying that yeah. to me, right? So, thank you. You're very welcome. I really can't take credit for that. It really is grandma. Yeah. It's, it's funny, um, I, I know that doesn't need a response, but 
what strikes me as funny, and I don't mean ha-ha funny, is that we have to, um, that so often we have to actually choose to train ourselves to be kind to ourselves. Wow. That means we were trained to do the opposite. Wow. And so the good news, what she just said, that's the good news, what Carrie just said, is now I see it. Oh, I get it. Yeah, I understand what that is. That's the wall Pema was talking about. I was trained to do that. That's not me. That's not me. That's not me. I was trained because it was the best thing I had. It was the only option. And so now I can see it and now I am responsible. Not my fault. I didn't create that. You didn't create that. But now that I see it, now I have the responsibility to go, oh, stop hurting that little one. No, 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 no. <clears throat> now I'm on Jewish Resort. Not angry, but just like, nope. His sword's like super sharp, dudes. It's like super sharp. It's on fire, and it's also super sharp. It's so cool. Thank you. <laughs> Anybody else have anything they want to? Anything else they haven't? <laughs> Anybody? Oh. I have a question. Please. with the sword and envision it as sort of a warrior spirit, like a spiritual warrior, you know, you have to, and so I really liked this interpretation of that, and a curiosity that came up for me, because I also like all those little symbols and oh. things, is, can you tell us about the scroll, what's that piece? Oh, sure, Rebecca, Yes. yeah, nice to meet you, you look familiar to me, but I, I'm not sure we've met. Um, okay, so there are other people in this room who know as much about this as me. I'm looking at some of you now. I'm looking at you. So jump in and correct me if I get this wrong. My understanding is, um, yeah, Manjushri is usually depicted with the flaming sword. Um, we had Manjushri on our, so Manjushri traditionally goes in the zendo because he's the wisdom guy. So he's the figure on the altar in a traditional Soto Zen. In the zendo, Manjushri. In the Buddha hall, Buddha. Um, so in the old Zendo, before we did our big remodel, Manjushri was on our altar. He did not have a sword. We had a swordless Manjushri, but he was sitting on the lion, which was extremely cool. See, it's, we, we're like, right, oh, there's lions and swords and empty scrolls. And like, oh, this is like a movie. So the, so, the, sword, is Praj, the sword is Prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom, which transcends even wisdom itself. His sword is, is um, Prajnaparamita. And in the statuary and in the iconography, uh, you are correct about the spiritual warrior, the Shambhala. The, it takes great courage to, to sit zazen. It takes, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? No one ever goes, nope. <laughs> no, it's hard to do it. Everything we've just talked about is, <clears throat> you can feel the, <clears throat> it's not angry, <clears throat> but it's, oh, I gotta dig in. This is hard stuff. So yeah, the warrior spirit. But um, in all the statuary and iconography, the sword, Prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom, is always held, when he's always holding it in his right hand, and it's always a very loose hand. It's not this. I mean, why would he need to hang on to anything like this, dude? He's Manjushri. It's all good, man. He's Bodhisattva. So he holds it kind of the way you'd hold an egg. Hold it like an egg. Remember Bull Durham when he hands him the baseball? Hold it like an egg, man. Right? If you're a pitcher, you hold the ball like an egg. When you're a cook, you hold the, so you hold, it's like, yeah, I don't have to grab on. So it isn't a violent idea of I have power that I'm now going to, act, right? That I'm not going to exercise over you. No, 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 no. 
The idea is being, oh, I can see the thing that's hurting you, like cancer cells. You see it once you saw it, you went, oh, that was the thing that was true, and that was the thing that was false, and it just falls away. Right? So the scroll, the scroll is uh, also Prajnaparamita, I think. I'm looking at Bonnie and Ben, I'm putting him on the spot. <laughs> They're both like, I don't know, man, keep going. It's at least a good story. We'll all Google it later and go, wow, he wasn't even close. Yeah. Not even close. <laughs> he just watched Kung Fu Panda too many times, and he made up a bunch of crap. Anyway. <laughs> My, my poor memory tells me that um, in place of the ruby flaming sword, uh, sometimes he's depicted as having the scroll, and the scroll is, again, Prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom. And since it's the perfection of wisdom, you can't write it down. <laughs> right? So remember at the end of Kung Fu Panda, the magic, the secret ingredient is there's nothing in the scroll, there's no secret ingredient. In other words, the thing you thought you lacked, there's nothing. Like when I find a scroll and I open it, then I'll read the thing that'll tell me the thing that I lack, and then I can become whole and perfect. <laughs> Oh, sweetie. <laughs> right? Because when you go to grandma and say, what do I lack? She would just say, oh, sweetie. There's a powerful teaching in there. Grandma's not kidding. You don't trifle with grandma. She loves you unconditionally. You couldn't possibly divorce yourself from her love. This is an archetype, right? But that, she's not a pushover. You don't get to eat all the cookies. You get one, <laughs> right? So on the scroll, the scroll of Prashamita is nothing. It's empty. So again, the teaching here. I'm mixing. <laughs> I'm mixing Buddhist iconography with with uh, animated movies and my memories of my grandmother's lemon cookies. Um, I do think the thread is the same though. And iconography, when it's best understood, really does point us back to. Oh, I get it. When Grandma said, all the kids laughed at you. That's true. I'm so sorry. But that doesn't mean you're bad. Because I had those two things fused together. They all laughed at me. I must be bad. And Grandma just went, with no effort. She didn't even know she was holding the sword. But she went, oh, one of those things is true. They all laughed at you. I'm so sorry. You must feel so sad. You must feel ashamed. You must feel lonely. You must feel angry. You must feel confused. Why don't you tell me about that? Nobody likes me because I'm bad. Nope. Do you feel how easy it is? I mean, they just fall away. But we have to get really close to these things in order for them to. Because things like that, I just made that up. I just made up that story. I mean, I also didn't because that happened a lot. But you understand what I'm saying. It's just we have to get really close to the, the feeling of the experience in order to go, oh, that's the part that's true. They all laughed. And here's the part that's not true. That means something about me. And grandma, robai shin is the Japanese word, grandmother mind, robai shin, the mind of grandmother, right? She has a strong back and a soft front. Robai shin, grandmother mind, soft front. Come on in, kiddo, let's bring it in, you little rascal. But strong back, <clears throat> feels grandma, right? And she's really good at seeing what's true and what is not true. So when you go to her and insist you are bad, she would just be like, nope. So anyway, now I'm riffing. Does that help with the scrolly, flamey thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, go home and Google it, you guys. Manjushri Bodhisattva. See what you can find. The drawings and paintings, it's so cool.